Are you happy this morning? You realize how early it is? You know, it's it's earlier for me. I came from California, so I've never taught a seminar at 5:30 in the morning. But I'm delighted to be able to be here, re reflecting on how I felt this morning. Uh, <clears throat> you know, with the time change, this happens a lot. So this isn't the first time I've ever felt a little groggy. I'll do my best not to do what a what a pastor told me he did once. He fell asleep during a Bible study. Unfortunately, he was teaching it at the time. And <clears throat> that's true, and I can't, I, it's I'm impossible to believe that could happen, but he did. He, they were building a new building, and he was just exhausted at this one point. And uh, uh, one night on a Wednesday night during a Bible study, between, I think, points three and four in his sermon, he just said, now for point four. <laughs> I've I've seen a few people doze while I've been teaching, but I haven't yet. <laughs> but anyway, uh, as I look out over uh, a crowd of people like you, I, you know, this past year I had a rather <clears throat> dreadful experience that I can tell by looking at some of you that you've had it too. Some of you haven't yet. Uh, my horrible experience was that I turned 40. <laughs> uh, some of you say, that's not old. <laughs> Someone sent me a birthday card. I've carried it in my Bible because it's so cute. Maybe some of you have seen this, but it says, For your birthday, my very talented dog, Rover, there he is right there, Rover, will tap out your age with his front paws. Watch. <laughs> and he starts off, you know, he's really chipper. Next picture, he just tapping away. Next picture, he's getting a little tired. You can just tell, a little sweat break. Next picture, he's getting a little discouraged, you know. Tapping out my... Next picture, he's down on a couple paws and he's tapping. <laughs> the next picture, he has, he's just... <laughs> you know, finally open it up and he's upside down and it says, oh no, you killed my dog. <laughs> Ever feel like that in God's kingdom plans for your life, you know? Just a little, a little worn down. Well, I tell you, it's a delight to be here and sense the joy of the Lord as well as the, the seriousness of the subject. And one of the things we try to communicate in all of our sharing on the subject of prayer is the joy that prayer gives us even when we don't necessarily feel that joy initially as we move into our devotional time with the Lord. The joy that comes by faith, knowing that no matter how you feel when you move into your prayer time, something's being affected all over the world as the result of my praying and that things really do happen when I pray. And so we're going to be sharing on that subject throughout the day and I know all of you will be also uh, interested to to know that we're going to be applying what we talk about often in the schools of prayer now that we conduct. I make mention of the fact that if you've ever been in university level training or even uh, aspects of college training, you know what what the instructor means when he says we're going to have uh, two hours of, of lecture hall and then we're going to have two hours of lab work. What we do is we go into the lab, so to speak, which may not necessarily be like a chemistry lab, but just into actually the practice of what we have just talked about doing so we can learn by experience. And that's why we're here this morning. I wonder how many here have ever prayed a prayer, asked God to do something that God did not do the way you asked him to do it. And later, you were glad he didn't. How many think you might have ever had something like that happen? My daughter gave me a card uh, about a year ago. 
very beautiful, elegant card. Uh, she didn't sign it, though, because she wanted it back to use on someone else. So I've, some of the principles of generosity haven't sunk in yet, but on the outside it says, All my life I asked God for a friend who was dignified, tasteful, and had a touch of class. And then I met you and my prayers were answered. God said no. <laughs> I thought that was cute too. I wouldn't give it back to her. She wanted to use it on another friend, but I kept it. Sometimes the Lord does say no to us. Sometimes he says wait. And I think if, if what I could say in these first couple of minutes would probably be more important than anything else, if we can learn more than anything else about prayer, that prayer is primarily and first of all just being with the Lord, to be in his presence, to love him and seek him. Seek his face, the Bible refers to. Everything else will fall into place. So our first desire in prayer is to find God, to touch God, to be with God, to find out what his purpose and plan is, and then pray for that to happen. And that's why he, why he moves us into the, the place of prayer. And so we're going to be sharing on that theme. And everyone here has received a little workbook like this that's been provided for you, which we're going to take notes in. This is going to be similar to a Change the World School of Prayer, a little bit different uh, perhaps than what I might do at a, an occasion where there are many churches represented. The last school of prayer we did was just a week ago Saturday in uh, the central part of California where about 58 churches came together for a tremendous, tremendous gathering of, of well over a thousand people and a tremendous hunger for God and, and uh, a concern to, to learn to, to pray for spiritual awakening as well as for worldwide evangelization. And we use these same workbooks, but when I'm with a, a group of leaders, <clears throat> I might adjust the teaching just a little bit. But uh, if you'll open up, we'll begin taking there in the inside. Then let me mention to you, and I'll probably refer to this again sometime or several times during the day. On the back table is the Change the World School of Prayer basic manual with insights from approximately 100 authors that have had dynamic influence over the generations and the subject of prayer and the kind of things you can meditate from point to point. Very, very, very easy reading and ex I would say extremely, if I can use that word, extremely inspirational on the subject of prayer, and at the end of the section is a little guide for practical, called Practical Prayer Helps, of how to get started the first 21 days in your, uh, either an, uh, the beginning of a devotional habit, if you haven't really moved into that, and or else a whole new approach, to, a freshness to it. That's back on the table, and we'll, we'll make more reference to that later on when we have a break, so you can obtain that if you want, because that's available. But on the inside, we're going to begin taking notes on the little triangular illustration. And so if you'll just... There it is. And uh, as we begin to share, first, for the ne next few minutes, is just basically an introduction to the relationship of prayer and the evangelization of the world as well as to several areas here. And then we will define prayer. Most of us can think of simple definitions for prayer, but we will define it, and I trust in a clear and a concise way, because by defining prayer and some of the aspects of it, 
you come to a recognition of what you may not be doing that's related to prayer and has significance. And uh, I find out, for example, that some people basically think of prayer only as one thing, talking to God and asking him to do things. And most of us know that it's probably more than that, and that's one of the reasons why that we're here sharing this. You don't really learn to pray by going to a seminar on prayer. You don't learn to pray by reading books on prayer. You don't learn to pray by listening to sermons on prayer, which prompts someone usually to at least think this question, well, then why, Brother Dick, do you teach seminars on prayer, write books on prayer, and preach on prayer? It's to motivate people to begin to do it, because in the doing of it, you learn what it really is. I want you to pause with me. I've been graciously extended the privilege of this pulpit today, and I thank the Lord for that. I consider it a tremendous honor of planting the seeds here today that the Lord wants us to plant. And I'd like you to pause and just agree with me in prayer, although we've already prayed. I want to just sanctify this very moment and each moment of this day as they, the moments combine themselves to form this whole day, that we will do exactly throughout this day what the Lord knows we need to do to make this as exciting a day as we've ever lived in our lives. How many would like that to happen? You know, why not? Okay, let's pray together. You agree with me in your heart. Father, we just pause now to once again, not in a sense enter into your presence as if to say that we've not been in your presence already, but to come at, at, your, at the door of your throne room, to knock in prayer. And Lord, as we understand scripture, we come through that door with thanksgiving and praise into your inner chambers. And so, Father, to begin with, I just praise you and honor you for who you are, God Almighty, and all your splendor and your beauty and your majesty and your power. And, Lord, from our hearts, we just let our praises arise to you, honoring and glorifying you, declaring that you are God, you are in charge, you are in control. And we rejoice to, to be able to turn our attention to you. We thank you, Lord, for this day. I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being here. I thank you for health. I thank you for bringing everyone here with a heart that is hungry. I thank you for the leadership here that is interested in, in the principles of prayer and interested in, in moving into even a stronger commitment to prayer. And Lord, for all those who are praying throughout this world right now in relationship to this very vital ministry. And Lord, I pray that something new will be deposited here that will strengthen the whole of this worldwide outreach as the result of not what I would teach, but the result of what you would say to us during the teaching. And I just pray, Father, that you will speak to us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. While I was praying, I was reminded. In fact, it was reflected in just a little statement in my prayer of what I heard a, a missionary leader of a major organization say some years ago, and he was starting to, to, to share. He said, it's not altogether important that you hear what I have to say today. He said, but it's terribly important that you hear what God has to say while I'm speaking. Did you hear that? It's not altogether important that you hear what I have to say, but it's terribly important that you hear what God has to say while I'm speaking. <laughs> the Lord will talk to us today and in some way have a little message personally for every one of us. Well, let's move into this. Sometimes it'll seem I'm going rather quickly, and if it appears that way, it's almost certainly because I'm moving toward a time of prayer, and I'm afraid that if I get to wandering too much and sharing all the things that come to my mind, as happens so often when I'm standing in front of a group like this, that we won't get to the prayer time. So I want to make sure we move quickly to this. The threefold potential of prayer, and the blue manual, the basic manual that some of you don't have, and I really want to encourage you all to get by the end of the day. There are seven major sections. 
The first section is called Prayer Untapped Power. And we discuss the potential of prayer. And here I want to highlight the threefold potential of prayer. First, the relationship between world evangelization, world evangelism and prayer. And that's any aspect of evangelism, including child evangelism. Matthew 28, 19 is one of those references we, we call the Great Commission. The, the, this, in this case, says, Go ye therefore and disciple the nations. Go ye therefore. Say those three words with me. Go ye therefore. How many, how many believe that the Lord intended for us to take the Great Commission literally? Smile if you think yes. <laughs> Smile anyway, because it's true. <laughs> but 19 chapters before that, in Matthew 9, 37 and 38, 19 chapters earlier, our Lord says, the harvest truly is plenteous, the laborers are few. And then he gives, and this is interesting, the only solution to the problems of world evangelization that our Lord ever gave from his lips, when he said, here's the problem, here's the solution. The harvest truly is plenteous. What did he say? The harvest truly is plenteous. Labors are few. Build ye therefore bigger and better seminaries, for thus thou shalt train all the workers. Does that sound right to you? Do you know your Bible? <laughs> no, the scripture says the harvest truly is plenteous. The labors are few. What's the next word? Pray. And in the old King James, pray ye therefore. Say those three words. Pray ye therefore. That's the reason why on the world prayer map that we'll use later, you don't need to open it up now, but it says on the front, go ye therefore, pray ye therefore, and then on the back we have the two verses just, and is to, to be a constant reminder that the go ye therefore will never reach its maximum fulfillment without the pray ye therefore to back it up as significant. Here I need to pause and share with you a statement or two that have had profound influence on my life. I don't know that there's probably been any other recent writer on the subject of prayer that's influenced me more than Paul Bilheimer, who wrote the book Destined for the Throne. I've spent many hours in his home and times of prayer with him and sharing together. And in his outstanding book, Destined for the Throne, that I may quote from later today, he says, and I quote, from heaven's standpoint, all spiritual victories are won, not primarily in the pulpit, not primarily in the bright light of publicity, nor yet through the ostentatious bearing of trumpets, blaring of trumpets, but in the secret place of prayer. The only power that overcomes Satan and releases souls from his stranglehold is the power of the Holy Spirit. And the only power that releases the Holy Spirit is the power of believing prayer. How many think that remotely sounds right? If that does, you see the significance of prayer being untapped power if we're not doing it, we're actually limiting by our not doing it what the Holy Spirit would desire to do through us through our praying. Look at it again, from heaven's standpoint, all spiritual victories are won, not primarily in the pulpit, not primarily in the bright light of publicity. Last year I had a strange experience. Oh my. I haven't told this maybe two times publicly. I was on television, and all of a sudden the bright lights just glare. And this was national television. And all of a sudden, I said to myself, I was about to talk about how much every ministry needs intercessory prayer. And all of a sudden, it hit me. I'm in the wrong spot. I'm in the wrong place. I shouldn't be here. 
on television like this? Now, this was a moment thing in that split second. It's not that I would never, ever participate on television again, but they, they were going through a great need and a great, a great uh, sort of spiritual warfare, and I was there to talk on the importance of intercession. When it hit me, I ought to be doing it, not talking about it, and I never had the urge so strong to just say, right while the program was going on and they were talking, would you excuse me a minute, I'm in the wrong spot. <laughs> I've got to go find a place to pray. And later, every time I've seen this scripture, although I haven't shared of that experience, because it was a warfare. In fact, very, I had a very emotional encounter that I couldn't even explain to people. I just started to weep. And, you know, I, you know here you're on TV and people are saying, is the poor man sick? You know, I mean, and I did finally was able to share that God had put on me a burden concerning intercessory prayer. And I thought of ministry and leadership. And this is what I said. I said, so often in ministry, it's like you're going into warfare. And in warfare, if anybody knows anything about in past wars of how squads and, and these groups, the soldiers go out, they, they go out kind of on a, like on a V, and one of them serves point. And the point man is the one that goes out before everyone else and picks up the first fire, and then they, they trade point. You sometimes from day to day, a different man goes on point. Like in the Vietnam War, when you were assigned point, I mean, that was when the greatest fear came over you because you know, 90% of those shot and killed were, were, were the guys up uh, on the point. And what I said on that program essentially was this, that what the Lord showed me is, is that too many ministries, we in leadership are out there going point when the intercessors should be the ones doing, doing, going out on the point. In other words, we can never get ahead of our intercessors. If we don't have intercessors covering us with prayer, we should stop everything and get some intercessors <laughs> before we start moving again. And this is what the Lord put on my heart, was why so often in ministries we get into trouble. We're doing, we're, we're doing point when we should have intercessors doing it. And that's not that we shouldn't be interceding too, but we need those prayer warriors, those that help cover us with prayer. I'll share some more on that theme as we move a little uh, on throughout the day. But the capacity to change the world is the first thing. The degree to which we pray is the degree to which we will be able to influence in the unseen realm what God is doing throughout the world. Some people say, yes, but our ministry is growing, and I don't know that we have that great a prayer base. I'll tell you something. If a ministry is growing, you've got somebody praying somewhere. You may not know the elderly saints that are in different places praying, and it's just a matter of tapping into that resource more. Christian unity in prayer, when you look at passages of Scripture like Acts 4.31 where it says, uh, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. So there was a dynamics of the power of God's Spirit that came. They all spoke the word of God with boldness. They were all filled with God's Holy Spirit. Then it says, and the multitude of them that believed were of, of one what? One heart. They had a spirit of unity came. You show me a group of people that are praying in a church or a, a community of believers, and I'll show you a united group. And the more they pray together, the more they'll be united. It's really tough to be mad and angry at a person when you're on your knees. You ever notice that? <laughs> Christian unity in prayer. The church is affected then. By the church, it, you can, I can mean here and apply it to the local church, but also to the body of Christ corporately is really what the reference is here to, is that when we start to pray, the body of Christ is going to be united. Thirdly, Jude verse 20 talks about building ourselves up in prayer. It's talking about building ourselves up spiritually. So spiritual growth is related to prayer. This is the capacity to change the individual. Now, I could have reversed this, but I wanted to keep this triangular illustration, the base of it being this, 
And that's why I've shared this last. I could have started down here perhaps with number one and gone to here. It might even have seemed more appropriate. Because it is as I grow in prayer that I affect the church, my church, and the body of Christ. And it is as I am revived, awakened, stirred, that I affect the church or a body of believers like right here. You, you let one person in a group like this have that dynamic, life-changing experience of a spiritual awakening, and you know it begins to spread. Something of their life passes to another to another. And there comes a spirit upon the body, and then the body then reaches out to touch a lost world. So it all is traced back to my own prayer experience. I do not know of ever reading in my life, in any of the research I've done on prayer, any spiritual awakening, ever, at any time, that did not begin with somebody having a deep, gnawing, almost insatiable, I don't even know all the words to use, hunger for more of God. And, incidentally, sometimes to a point of desperation, where they even see, you know, people around them might say, yeah, well, Bob is just turning strange lately. I mean, all he wants to do is, you know, spend time in the Word and seek God. God's doing something in him. He's seeking after God. And when that begins to happen, a spiritual awakening takes place in that person, and there's a genuine awakening that touches others, and that begins to spread. It ignites a fire. Then they touch a lost world. The key scripture here is Philippians 3.10. Because that's my primary prayer goal. And Paul summed it all up in these words. He said, I call it Paul's reason for being. That I may, what's the next word? Know him. That I may know him. I have a new book came out uh, just this past year uh, called The University of the Word. And uh, actually what it is, it looks like probably more like it's a just a book on Bible study and just by the very nature of the cover. And, and it does get into how to even cross-reference Mark and study your Bible in a real fun sort of a way. And uh, yet the whole concept is, the word university means a place of learning at the highest level. That's what a university is. And there's no place of learning. And I think you'll all agree, there's no place of learning that's at a higher level than this book right here. Right? <laughs> You can't find all the answers, like President Reagan, I heard him share a year ago in January, or February, at the President's Prayer Breakfast. Uh, in fact, I quoted, I quoted him in the introduction here, and maybe I can find his exact words when he talked on the Bible. Yes, he said, the Bible, oh, I've got to go back up one page. Let's make sure I get it right. Am I missing a page? Oh yeah, he says this, The Bible can touch our hearts, order our minds, and refresh our souls. For the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of God shall stand forever. And then he added, Within the covers of this single book are all the answers to all the problems that face us today, if we would only look there. All of it, and I agree. But what I started to say, the, uh, I didn't mean to just pause and give you an uh, in-depth explanation of the, the, the university of the word. My Bible is kind of a mess. I don't know if anybody else, I'm a little embarrassed sometimes to hold it up. But it, I, the Lord gave up in my heart over a number of years a plan for having fun reading your Bible every day and categorizing verses, first with a certain number system related to life principles, and then beginning to even color, color code them. So uh, looking through the Bible, it just kind of it takes on a whole new meaning and a whole new joy. Well, at the beginning of the book, I share four determination goals 
for enrolling in the University of the Word. The University of the Word is not this book. The University of the Word is not the study. The University is the book itself of enrolling in it every day. But the reason I mention that verse, Philippians 3.10, in the introduction I quoted it from the Amplified Version of the Bible, and I want to share this with you. It says, For my determined purpose is that I may know him, and listen to this, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him. Now there's the key. Progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him. And that I may in the same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection, that I may be continually transformed in spirit into his likeness, that I am constantly improving, constantly growing. You know, we have hassles over what the word perfect means sometimes. You know, and be ye perfect as I am perfect. And my pastor was out in an apple orchard some years ago with a farmer, huge apple orchard. And it had to be, I don't know, I don't know anything about apples in the process of how long it takes for them to mature to become ripe. But these were just teeny-weeny little apples. They were about that big, and they were green. And he said, the old farmer just reached up and said to my pastor, look at that, pastor. In the process of its development, that apple right now is perfect. It's absolutely perfect in its process of development. It's moving toward being as good an apple as you could ever find anywhere. Now, right now, he said, if you took a bite out of it, it'd be very bitter. But it's exactly what it should be at this point. And boy, did that cast a whole new uh, thought in my heart about what it means to be growing in the Lord. Huh? How many think there might be a couple flaws in your life yet that could be worked out? But you trust, you're like Paul, who said, I'm not there yet in this passage, but I press toward the mark. I'm heading in the right direction. And often when we make a commitment to begin to develop a prayer experience from day to day. When we begin to do that, that's the first step toward that real growth process. So that's our goal, that I may know him. But now let's look at very quickly at some definitions of prayer. Some definitions of prayer. Now, I'm going to give you one word for each of these. I have three words. Reduce this this teaching to three words, each of these aspects or types of prayer. And I'll reduce them further to one that later you could even write down in the front of your Bible someplace as a reminder how balanced is my prayer time, my prayer experience. First of all, the most commonly uh, understood aspect of prayer would be this entreating spiritual power or calling to God, asking God to, to invade a situation to help. The word, The one word here that I want to give you is the word calling. I call out to God. I say, God, I need you. And I gave three examples here. Elijah, 1 Kings 18, 37 and 38. That's where he called to God for fire to come down upon the sacrifice, and it did. Only a 25-word prayer. Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles 18, 31. 2 Chronicles 18, 31. Jehoshaphat cries out for God to help him in battle, and God invades the situation and answers that prayer. Samuel calls out to God in 1 Samuel 7, 9, and 10. That's 2 Chronicles 18, 31. I should pause here to say just uh, for the, the Child Evangelism Fellowship uh, and the staff and those that may come on in training in the future, we're recording this. And I, I have to remember that because I may forget a few verses because you see them on the overhead projector. But uh, that's Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles 18, 31. 
And then Samuel, 1 Samuel 7, 9, and 10 is the experience where he calls out to God for God to send power upon Israel in a battle. And so there are three, several different examples, and all they are is examples of calling to God. God, I need you. God, I ask you to help me in this day for strength, for provision. But there's another level of prayer that many of us, oh boy, I teach this. And I have to remind myself how rarely it seems, unless I really school myself or discipline myself, to move into this level of prayer. And it's transacting spiritual business or commanding in God. The first is calling to God. Second is commanding in God. And by the way, I need to pause here for those leadership here that would use these cassettes for anyone in the future. Uh, here at, with Child Evangelism Fellowship to make sure you keep a few of these little workbooks on hand. I say that because then a person sees exactly where to write these things down and it makes a little more sense. Uh, transacting spiritual business, commanding in God. First of all, prayer is calling to God. Secondly, it's commanding in God. And this is a little bit more difficult for some believers to do. It's almost like you might be infringing on God's territory to move into prayer and take direct action by commanding a thing to happen. But Matthew chapter 18, verses 18 and 19, is what I call the law of spiritual authority. I'm quite convinced, and I haven't done any kind of a scientific type survey, but I would imagine that 90% of praying Christians rarely, if ever, move into this kind of praying with a full understanding of its significance. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. On a few occasions I've heard even Bible teachers try to almost explain away the fact that that's for us today. But there's too many other things in Scripture that would indicate it is, including even Jesus saying to his disciples when you, that you can command the mountain to be moved and you can take that kind of action. He later, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later this morning, he later gave them the power of attorney to use his name in coming into situations. And the law of spiritual authority is simply this. When we take authority, right in the word authority, on earth, God releases power from heaven. Now, I would almost be tempted to change that since I first developed these thoughts, the last two words, where it says, from heaven to possibly into the heavenlies. Or at least I would add those words, from heaven into the heavenlies. The reason is, is because the, the expression there, in heaven, is the same expression as you read in Revelation where it says, and there was war in the heavenlies. That's the same expression in the original Greek language. You say, what significance is that? Well, it has to do with what the word bind really means. Down below you have, write the word in, to bind. Incidentally, when we say a law of spiritual authority, a law is a sequence of events occurring with unvarying uniformity. In other words, things happen when we pray. Our prayer are not just idle words. Specific things take place in our own growth and uh, that affect history and affect the extension of any ministry for the glory of the Lord. Now, getting back to the word bind. Bind does mean, yes, to tie, as with a rope. 
to tie up something. But we're talking in the unseen spiritual realm. The reference here is clearly to a legal term. And the legal term bind means a restraining order. To compel as by oath or legal restraint. Now get back to the first part of that definition where I described, I said that when we take authority on earth, direct action, God releases power into the heavenlies. Or he releases power from his throne room into the heavenlies. And what is that power? It's a restraining order against the satanic forces saying you can't operate in this way any longer. You are literally taking direct action commanding the forces of the enemy to stop. Now, I referred earlier to my dear friend who's now in heaven and uh, a dear, dear brother, Paul Bilheimer, destined for the throne, so affected my life that I asked Paul Bilheimer about two and a half years ago if I could go to his home and uh, would he read to me his entire book. I said, there's something in your heart, brother Paul, that I sense when I read the book that because of my age, and because of your age, and he's more that was was more than twice my age, that I need to actually in prayer ask the Lord to transfer an understanding of that, just like something transferred from Moses to Joshua, that I need to ask you to give it to me. And the only way I know is for you to read the book to me. And well, it took three days. We recorded it, and it's kind of a little sacred possession of mine. <laughs> uh, someday we might even make it available to some, and I've just been a little reluctant to do that up till now. But uh, he read the book to me. And on the tapes, all the way through, you can hear Paul Bilheimer stopping like he's clearing his throat, but he's not. He's starting to cry. And oh, ever so often he'll say this, Oh, Brother Dick, I am so old and you're so young. Now, even though I turned 40. He said, You're so young. He said, Please, please spend all of your energy. Go to the church. Take this message to the church. Tell them, make prayer the main business. Make prayer the main business. And bless his heart, he just lived with a conviction that God really answered prayer. And by the way, there isn't a finer explanation of the motive of prayer than I've ever read in my life, other than scripture itself in Paul Bilheimer's book, Destined for the Throne. But in the very opening introduction, in the first three pages of Destined for the Throne, he says this, and I want to quote it because it has to do with this very aspect of prayer. Paul Bilheimer said, and I quote, Prayer is not begging God to do something which God is unwilling to do. It is not overcoming reluctance in God. It is enforcing Christ's victory over Satan. That's good stuff. You know, I say to people, you don't have to say amen, but at least breathe heavy, because that's good stuff. It is enforcing Christ's victory over Satan. It is implementing upon earth heaven's decisions concerning the affairs of men. Now, this next sentence is worth most libraries in the world. Right here, one sentence. Calvary legally destroyed Satan and canceled all of his claims. Oh my, that's so good. Calvary legally destroyed Satan and canceled all of his claims. God has placed the enforcement of Calvary's victory in the hands of the church. We carry out the enforcement. Then he quoted the, the scripture I just quoted. Then he says, he has given to her power of attorney. She, that's us, the church, is his deputy. But this delegated authority is wholly inoperative apart from the prayers of a believing church. I want to read that again. But this delegated authority is wholly inoperative apart from the prayers of a believing church. Therefore, prayer is where the action is. That's what he says. Now get this. Any church, I'm going to paraphrase, any church or ministry. Is it all right if I put ministry in there? 
Any church, any ministry without a well-organized and systematic prayer program is simply operating a religious treadmill. That away for now. Commanding, taking direct action in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and doing it with the authority that something's going to happen. Several years ago, how many here can even remotely remember, even vaguely, I'm, I'm guessing about five years ago, 153 school children in Holland being held hostage by terrorists. Anybody remotely think they remember something like that? Good. The reason is, so, so you know, I'm not just telling something, not making something up. I prayed every day, as I recall, for those little children. Every day. I prayed something like this, oh God, be with them. Oh God, help none of them to be hurt. Incidentally, they, they weren't hurt. And I know I wasn't the only one praying. But I had a strange experience on the last day. My mind, it seems to be, it was the seventh day. I know it was a long time. The anxiety of parents must have been horrible. The, the terrorists issued statements like, we're going to begin at certain such and such a deadline, executing one at a time at random until you honor. And they had every indication that these, that these terrorists would do exactly that from past things that had happened. And I prayed each day. Now, I have a time in prayer I, I describe in the hour that changes the world. I'll mention that later. Twelve biblical types of prayer. One of the types of prayer is to watch. Watching it in relationship to prayer. To become aware, alert. That's what it means of what I should pray for. And how do you do that? How do you depend on the Holy Spirit to show you what you should be praying for now that may have an effect around the world? And in, in that time, I'll, I might pause to think, what have I heard on the news? Like yesterday, flying on the plane, I remembered something about Nicaragua while I was praying and, and about situation down there and I said Lord show me how to pray or, or, or give me an, a guidance in prayer and thoughts began to come how to pray for that situation well this uh, some years ago this situation took place these 153 school children and so I prayed each day now then came the last of the days of these kids being held hostage and it came time for prayer and I started to pray exactly like I did every other day sort of oh dear God please be with those kids don't let any of them get hurt Help them to be let go. I don't know what I prayed. I don't even remember anything about the prayer until the last morning that they were held captive. Because that morning I started to pray like every other morning and the strangest, most incredible thing happened that I would, I don't, I don't feel badly if someone doesn't understand or thinks it sounds just a little bit strange because to this day sharing it, I don't understand it. Because you see, I started to pray for those little school children and my mind was very open to the leading of the Holy Spirit in that moment when a strange thing happened that I couldn't remember ever happening like that before. In my mind, I saw those 153 school children. And I was just hovering over them. And I saw them. I saw their faces. I can't explain it. Yet it was in my mind. But I saw them. Only one difference. One difference. And it was a big one. Of what really the setting must have looked like. The one difference was... I saw 151 Dutch school children and the other two girls sitting in that classroom were my two daughters, my two children. And something came over me when I saw my children. And I didn't even think of them as being comfortable in their beds early that morning, just a few feet. We have a prayer chapel in our backyard, and I was out there, and that they're, everything is fine, or they're getting up and getting ready for breakfast. In my mind, I was moved into another level of praying that I didn't understand. I didn't even stop to try to understand it, because I was being moved now by the Holy Spirit. And I began to pray, and I prayed unlike any other time I've ever prayed in that kind of a setting. I even, I even hit my head. I don't know if that helps. <laughs> I said, I command you. The old walls of that prayer chapel kind of began to shake with aluminum walls. 
Uh, and I began to, I said, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you terrorists, let those... And I was not talking mildly. I was taking direct action. I was commanding them in no uncertain terms. Tears were flowing. I was trembling all over. Now, I didn't even stop to say, hey, this is dumb. You're not supposed to do this. People will think you're a weird fanatic. Well, no one was there anyway, but if I ever told it, and I didn't know I was going to ever be telling it, you, you know that, and that kind of experience, I was just doing what, what came, and I said, I command you, and I mean, I was, in the name of Jesus, you let those children go, you cannot hold them one moment longer. I didn't even know if I was pointing in the direction of Holland. I, I didn't even think, where might Holland be? No idea. I command you in the name of the Lord to let them go, and I just wept, and all of a sudden, a release came, so much so, that I told... The only way to describe it is almost like I ceased praying completely because I didn't even know that it was a burden any longer. I left the prayer room. It was so abrupt, so forceful of a release. I didn't tell even a person in how I had prayed that day, which became significant that night because I went to the office, came home from work. It was exactly 6 o'clock as we sat down at dinner, and in the next room, uh, in clear view from where I was sitting, was the television set was on, and it was CBS News. And at exactly 6 o'clock, Walter Cronkite came on. He was then the anchorman at CBS News. Came on, and without any kind of fanfare, no introduction like you'd normally have with a, uh, you know, so, so a slide or a picture of introducing CBS News. Suddenly, it was just his face sitting there at the desk. And his first words were these. We have good news today from Holland. He said, we've just received report that three of the 153 school children have been released. And he said something nice like, the first indication of a breakthrough. And instead, I remember a forceful, forkful, a forkful of mashed potatoes en route to my mouth. I remember actually starting to eat. And instead of saying, praise the Lord, or oh, thank you, Lord, the work has begun, a, another strange thing happened. My lips started to tremble. The tears started to come. I put my fork down. Nobody in my family knew what was happening. I hadn't told any of them how I prayed that morning. And all I said was, Lord, I didn't ask. For three, I claimed 153. And Lord, that was not my prayer, but the prayer of your Holy Spirit. And I claim it now. <laughs> I felt so dumb. I claim it now. And wham, oh, zapple. It's the only way I can describe it. Right in front of Walter Cronkite came this thing that said bulletin. And, you know, the funny noise, you know, whatever it was. And I thought, what on earth's happening? And all of a sudden, that lifted up. I mean, this happened the moment I said, I claim it now. The bulletin came down. Then suddenly it was a news reporter from the Los Angeles affiliate of the, of the CBS News. And suddenly this reporter was saying, we interrupt this broadcast to bring you an update of the information Walter Cronkite has just given. The information he received at the time was inaccurate. It was not three school children that were released earlier today. But all 153 were released at the exact same time. Now, what do you think that made me feel? See, now, they, oh, Walter Cronkite could have had the accurate information. I think the Lord just, you know, the Lord's up in heaven sometimes saying, oh, this is fun. <laughs> you know, I, he's doing something in us to increase our faith. And I know that I, I wasn't the only person praying, but I will never, ever doubt that something happened when I prayed as I moved into that setting. And you know that that has given me encouragement over those last several years and cases that have come like that, where I know, in my sense, I have all of God's word to let me know when I can move into his will and take direct action and authority in a situation and command the forces to be restrained, issuing a legal restraining order. So, sometimes in prayer, we're, so to speak, on our spiritual knees, on the planet Earth, saying, God, please, 
I ask you to do this. Or I claim this of you, God. Then there's another spiritual level, it seems, in prayer where you're transported to the very throne room with God. Now get this. Now you're not asking God, please do this. He's saying, command that. He's saying, take authority over that. And you want to know something? In any gathering, anywhere I go, I know my own experience, a lot of people have never learned to move into that level of prayer because they're not sure exactly how. And the only way you can is to move into God's Word. Because when you understand God's will, like old George Mueller, who worked with the orphans at the turn of the century, most of you know that story. Do you know when he died, he had over, I think it was over 50,000 handwritten, documented answers to prayer. If ever a man learned to take direct authority, like in my book, No Easy Road, where he commanded the fog to lift, <laughs> he got in, they'd been sitting there for three days, and the, the boat hadn't moved at all, so he called, he called the captain down to his quarter, said, we got to pray, and the, the captain started to pray, and Mueller interrupted him and said, no, 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 don't, don't pray, don't pray, I'm sorry I asked. <laughs> he said, you have no faith, it's just going to hinder things, and the poor captain didn't know what to think. He said, I'll pray. And he took direct authority in the name of Jesus, and when the captain opened the door, the fog was gone. I mean, that's not even possible. Well, it's called a miracle. And, and he had that kind of faith. Those that ever talked to George Mueller and said, how did that increase in you? How did you come about that? He came about that by living in this book. The, the degree to which you live in this book is the degree to which you have faith and prayer. In fact, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. So, it seems like I'm wandering off the subject in a sense now talking about the word of God, but that's our authority. That's where we gain our authority. And we issue that legal restraining order against the enemy. So, in one hand we're calling to God, in another we're commanding in God. And by the way, don't look at me as if I might understand all this. Uh, I'm just grasping the surface, scratching the surface and understanding this. Someone asked Mrs. Albert Einstein if she understood the theory of relativity. And she smiled and said, no, not at all. But I understand Albert, and he can be trusted. <laughs> so I don't understand everything, even all, all the depth of what I'm talking about. But I know the Lord, and I know he can be trusted. The third thing here <clears throat> of these definitions of prayer is prayer is tapping spiritual secrets. This is confiding in God. Now we move to an entother, another entire level of prayer, which is tapping spiritual secrets. Confiding with God, confiding in God. Not just that, but God confiding in us. Letting us have his, hear his secrets. Daniel chapter 2, verses 21 and 22 is the scripture that talks about God's sovereignty. So beautiful. It's one of the most clear statements on God's sovereignty in all the world, world, that he removeth kings, setteth up kings, giveth wisdom unto the wise, knowledge to them that know understanding, and he revealeth the deep and secret things. But although God is sovereign in the revealing of these things, he set forth, I would say, either conditions or means by which we can move into receiving his secrets, where he says, I will do this if you do that. One of the ways to tap God's secrets, a little four-letter word that spells power that I greatly misunderstood when I was a child growing up and hearing it in the church, and it had to do with this word, the fear of the Lord. I never really saw the beauty of that statement. It is a beautiful statement when you understand that fear doesn't just mean, as we would think, an, ang an anxious uh, uh, anxiety and a worry, and uh, uh, we all know 
basically fear almost without attempting to de describe it when you're stricken with fear. You are afraid to, to move any further because of that fear. And the fear of the Lord does not necessarily at all have to mean that. As a matter of fact, in its highest definition, you'd have to say fear means reverence, deep, deep reverence, a reverence so deep and a respect so so strong that it's almost impossible to describe. Respect. Respect is the act of noticing with attention. And the reason I define this here is so you'll see the relationship to the fear of the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Let me come back to that in a moment and make that relationship more clear. First, give you a scripture, Psalm 25, verses 12 through 14. It says, What man is he that feareth the Lord? Three things will come. Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. God will teach you. God will be your teacher. You'll tap the wisdom of God. His soul shall dwell at ease. You'll tap the peace of God. His seed shall inherit the earth. That's the blessing of God. And seed here is a reference to our children. So there you see the the blessing going on to our children. You know this very well. In a family where parents fear the Lord and respect the Lord, they transfer something to their children. I watch that in our own home with our two girls in comparison to their friends at school. And just things they do. My daughter's on the high school tennis team. And uh, when I'll watch her play tennis and then I'll watch her, one of her friends play tennis and some of the words she uses when she misses the are quite different than what my daughter uses. <laughs> as you can imagine, and the, the thing that came to me was, my daughter, even if she were ever to slip and make a mistake in some areas like that, something would happen within her. She has not been taught that way. That is not how a child of the king lives. And so we transfer something to our children by, by our very life, and of course in the ministry that you're involved in, everything that you are is transferred as you develop uh, ministry to children all over the world. But then it goes on to say this added blessing, this added Aspect, the secret of the Lord is with them that what? Fear him, right. The secret of the Lord. The New International Version, and, I, and this certainly is, a, I think, a more accurate translation in this particular verse here, says, the Lord confides in those who fear him. Say that with me. The Lord confides in those that fear him. The confiding means sharing things that you wouldn't share with someone else. That you can be trusted to be told things. Now, the, you say, what does this have to do with prayer? Okay, this is very foundational and very important. Listen carefully. Fear, the fear of the Lord, is the deep reverence of God and respect of God. Respect is the act of noticing with attention. You as a ministry, setting aside a day like this for prayer and instruction in relationship to prayer for future development, the very act is an act of the fear of the Lord, an act of noticing God in a special way with attention. Even ministries can demonstrate the fear of the Lord. In giving special attention, the act of noticing with attention, in a level of marriage or something, it might be like my getting my wife a dozen roses or a box of my favorite candy. I'm not sure that works out right, but... Uh, it's saying I want to do something special every day that I set aside time to talk with God 15 minutes to open up His Word 
to pray over the ministry I'm involved in, just to love him, to be with him, says, I notice you. That, believe it or not, is a demonstration of the fear of the Lord. The reverence of the Lord, the respect of the Lord. And when you do that, God says, I will let you tap my secrets. In the very verse where it says of Daniel that God revealeth the deep and secret things, God revealed secrets to Daniel. When? In his night talks with the Lord. I mean, right there you see it. Go to the other side of the page here. Oh, let me, the biblical definition, I want to fill this all in for you. The biblical definition of fear, print the word fear in there, is, and that's Proverbs 8.13. Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate something. What is it? Evil. To hate sin. The closer you come to God's holiness, like in Isaiah chapter 6, the more you'll be absolutely obsessed with a hatred for that which would grieve God in sin. Now I've saved, I say the best for last. That's not to mean, it's not to mean that everything else is, is not significant in prayer. Did you pick up a pattern so far? The first area has to do with almost vocal calling to God. Activity. The second, the second has to do again with activity but on a different level. Authority, but still there may be words, maybe vocal prayer. I, I, I claim this or I pray in this manner. The third now becomes a quiet level of prayer. It's more of a listening. How much time do I spend in the word to listen to what God wants to say to me in reference to that day? Now the last word, so the first is calling, then commanding, now then confiding. Now developing spiritual love is communing. Now, it's true that confiding comes from communing, so you'll see a relationship in all of this. But I say this is the, the bottom line. This is what prayer really is. It's a love relationship. It's being near the Lord to love Him, to touch Him, to want to know Him better, not just to want to things. And there's nothing wrong with asking God for things. That's biblical, scriptural, especially when they, the things we ask for would honor God, not just kind of make us more wealthy or something like that. But developing spiritual love is a key to prayer. It's communing. Look at Daniel again. Daniel 11.32 says that there is a certain class of people. It says this class of people, the people that do something, something. There's a word there. In relationship to their God shall become this strong, shall be strong, and do exploits. Some of you know the word that's missing up there. I'll come back to that in a moment. First in letter A, let's define strong. Then let's define exploits. Strong means firm. It means durable. Exploits means bold deeds. And daring acts. And the Bible here says... That a certain class of people will have this happen. The people that do. What's the word that's missing here? The people that do something, their God, shall be strong and do exploits. Anybody want to hazard a guess? I'll give you a hint. Do you know what the word is? <laughs> right. It's the word no. The people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. But that word poses a unique problem if you meditate even 
for about one minute on this verse. And I'll tell you what the unique problem is to save you the one minute meditation, okay? It's this. How many of you have ever known somebody in the church, now listen carefully to this, that you knew had an experience in Christ, that they knew the Lord? How many have ever known that type of a person, but that person did not do, was not firm and durable? And did not do bold deeds and daring acts. And yet you knew that they had committed their life to Jesus. Have any of you here ever known anybody like that? Have any of you here ever known anybody really, really personally well like that? I'll say it again. In case you missed what I just shared. Someone that knew the Lord. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses from all sin. Not my maintaining a list of things I do and don't do, right? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. That brings me into my relationship with the Lord. But the maturity after that. So is dependent on my increasing. Growing closer to the Lord. And really knowing him. So I look at it this way. I said in every church. You can find a couple classes of people. Those who know the Lord. And those who know the Lord. You see what I mean? You understand? Some know him. Oh yeah I know the Lord. I talked to him last Easter. You know. Or Christmas. Then there are those who know him intimately. And the, the, the verse here says just this simple word. The people that know the Lord shall be strong and do exploits. But obviously not all people that know the Lord in what we perceive the word know means. To know him through Jesus Christ. Not all of them are always firm and durable. And not all of them are going around doing bold deeds and daring acts. Some of them are very, very weak believers. You say, well, then there must be something in that word no that's a little stronger in Daniel 11.32 than we think. I heard a Bible teacher first call this to my attention, and it's become a part of almost every prayer training I've ever done, certainly every Change the World School of Prayer. What I did was, I, at the recommendation of this Bible teacher, he said, if you ever come across a word in, your, in a, a verse, and you think it has a much greater meaning, but you can't discover it just by the, that verse, uh, or by the context of that verse, he said, go find the original word in the original language, look up all the other instances where it's used, and see if you might pick up an entirely different slant for what that word may mean really in that reference. I did that. The word happens to be yada. The Hebrew word for, say that word with me, yada. The Hebrew word for no in Daniel 11.32 is yada. The people that do yada, their God shall be strong and do exploits. So I started looking up all the instances of the use of the word yada. In fact, when I first opened up Strong's Concordance and discovered about a thousand of them, I broke out in a cold sweat, you know, thinking I'd be list, you know, looking up verses through the millennium. But I came to Genesis 4.1, and that's where I believe a key answer, if not the answer, to, to Daniel 11.32 is shared. You see, Genesis 4.1 not, is not the kind of verse that you would write a Bible devotion for children on. It's not the kind of verse that you would even ever hear a pastor preach on. It's just a pure statement of fact. And yet in Genesis 4.1, it's, it's kind of on a delicate subject. In the old King James, you know, if you're reading your Bible to your family, you have kids eight or nine years of age, and you come to Genesis 4.1, you kind of slip through it fast, hoping they don't ask any questions. Otherwise, that necessitates a, a possible involved explanation. Or maybe the, the statement, well, I'll talk to you about that when you get older. All the verse says in the old King James Version is, Adam knew Eve. 
And she conceived, and of course, the conception brought about life. Adam knew Eve. The word is yada. It's the exact same word. Now, that word there, in that case, is talking about the highest level of intimate contact between a man and a woman in union that produces life. Adam, yada, Eve, coming together, and life resulted. The people that yada, their God, shall be strong and do exploits. If you transfer an understanding of the word in the physical sense to a spiritual sense, which is very difficult, incidentally, for some people to do because we live so much in the physical flesh that it almost seems like a bad illustration. How can you have an illustration like that? Well, if you begin to think very clearly, it's not difficult at all that in the union of a man and woman together, they're alone. There is great intimacy. There is rich love. There's a sharing of themselves and an opening up of themselves, and it leads to life can result from that coming together in that union, Adam, Yada, Eve. In Daniel 11.32, the people that do Yada, God. That could be, very, very clearly could be a reference to people that know God at the highest level intimately possible. And for us in this, on this planet is to go into the presence of God, to minister unto Him, to be alone intimately in His presence, whereby the seeds of life are planted for the glory of the Lord. Could it be that the reason some ministries and some churches don't see much spiritual life is there isn't much spiritual yada? Could it be that the ministries that are seeing life burst all over the world, people coming into the family of God, could it be the reason that's happening is there's a lot of yada? That kind of rhymes, a lot of yada. In fact, one church after we went there started a new, new prayer meeting on Saturday nights. I got a kick out of this because they never explained in the bulletin what it meant. People would come up to the pastor and say, what does this mean here on Saturday night at 7, seven o'clock? You have this thing called yada yada. <laughs> they called it yada yada. And it meant, it, it, the, the word in this reference has a, a sense of intimacy with the Lord. To come into his presence at the highest level of intimacy possible. Some people say, yes, but, but I have my prayer time on the freeway driving to work. I have my prayer time when I'm grocery shopping. You know, I talk to the Lord then. Do, 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 you, do you love and hug your husband in the grocery aisle? When you go, you know, do, 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 do you reach over and put your arms around each other and have an intimate time of, of closeness when you're driving down the freeway? You say, well, that's silly. That's dumb. In that moment, oh, by the way, I, just so you understand, I do pray when I'm driving on the freeway <laughs> a lot. lot. And uh, we're, we're from Los Angeles where we have 169 miles in, in Los Angeles alone of, of, of uh, highways, of freeways, and 5 million registered vehicles. It's really interesting to see all five million of them want the same freeway at about five o'clock in the afternoon. But I don't. I talk to God then. I may talk to God. Well, I don't do a lot of grocery shopping, but I may talk to God wherever I am. But the fact of the matter is, that is not the intimacy of the bedchamber, so to speak, where I go in and be alone and I shut out everything and I just say, like last night, sitting there, turn the lights off for maybe an hour, an hour and a half, and just saying, Lord, I just want to be here. I just want to love you. I brought along a book I'm working on, and it was laying right there, right, right beside me, and some things that I needed to do. And I don't want this to sound like I'm trying to sound super spiritual, but I just knew that then I couldn't do that. You know, that'll have to wait. And it'd have to wait so I could wait on the Lord. And there's something about that spiritual yada that's so important, that an absence of yada in the physical sense means an absence of life. And I believe the same thing is true in a spiritual sense. By definition, if, you were to, to, if I were to paraphrase the word yada 
at its highest level of definition. Yes, it can mean just to casually know. You'll find it all through Scripture used in places of just knowing, yet that someone knew that a certain thing was happening. But at its highest level, it's a reference to life-giving intimacy. So under definition, right, life-giving intimacy. You know, if there's any life in this time today, it will be because it's flowed. It is, it is because God has poured out his life. And I keep, the Lord keeps reminding this of me, that I will only give out what I take in from him, alone with him. And if I ever cease having those times prolonged in his presence, just waiting, something's going to stop flowing in the teaching. It'll have to. And, and it's life-giving intimacy. Just as intimacy, the illustration at the bottom, just as intimacy in marriage creates a meaningful marital relationship, psychologists would tell you that human contact, that level is so vital, and yet it also leads to life, conception, birth. Just as intimacy in marriage creates a meaningful marital relationship, intimacy with God creates a meaningful spiritual relationship and likewise leads to life. The bottom of your illustration, it says, my personal written commitment for daily, write in the word yada there. Write these words, dear Lord, just dear Lord. Put a little comma after. Let that be a reminder to you later, sometime today, tonight, during a break, sometime, to pencil in a simple prayer. Lord, I want, to, I want to express a desire that you will never allow me to let a day go by without spiritual yada. I want to pause here. Or you can put it in your own words and then later do what I did in the front of my Bible. I wrote a letter to Jesus one night. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget it for one reason because I've got it written. I can go back and read what I wrote. And I want to just stop here. In fact, I'll shut this off for a moment. We're going to have a very short, uh, the next session is very short, and then we're going to have a prayer time and after that a break. But I want to just say a word in planting the first, well, maybe some seeds have already been planted, but planting the first of, of taking all these seeds, perhaps maybe in a sense watering them now, by sharing with you that eight years ago, this very month, for all I know, I, ne I didn't write the date down at that time. I, I started shortly after that to keep a daily journal and a prayer diary, but I didn't write this date down that I ever recall. But it's eight years ago in November, sitting in my backyard. I crossed over a line. I want to tell you about that because there's at least one person here that's going to cross over this line, and it could be 50%, could be 80%, could be all of us. Boy, what I'd like to see ever once in my life plant seeds on the soil of, a, of the hearts of people that would be, you know when Jesus talked about the sower, isn't it interesting that when he came to the good ground, he didn't just say there was good ground and the seeds all grew, you know, and produced fruit. He said, and they grew, and then he categorized them. Now that's amazing. Some grew. Anybody remember what the levels were? He said they grew at a certain level, a certain percentage. Anybody even want to hazard a guess? 30-fold, 60-fold, and then 100-fold. There's some that never quite make it to half, some that make it just over, you know, just over the majority of that what's planted grows. And that's good. They feel good about that. But then there's that category where when they're touched, they, they bear a hundredfold fruit. And I thought, boy, wouldn't that be something to ever stand in front of a group where every, the seed produced a hundredfold? By that, by the way, I think that, I think that could be defined as 
that the maximum capacity of what a seed could produce out of their life, God knowing who they are, it would reach that capacity. Different people have different talents, different amounts of money. We all, though, have the same amount of time, don't we? No one here has one less or one more minute than anyone else in this room. But I crossed over a line eight years ago. I just want to share briefly that it had to do with my coming to grips with a scripture in Matthew that says, when Jesus said in Matthew 26 to his disciples, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? And the manner in which the Lord dealt with me. It's on a cassette tape. We don't have it here. It's uh, called Three Secrets to Power. And it's, uh, any tapes of these are available from our ministry. And later today I may mention that again. But you could just write for any information uh, from our ministry. And there's a little brochure we gave you on the ministry today. But I describe that because there is some humor and real significance in what led up to the dealing with the Lord in my life of this matter of, of could you not watch with me one hour? But if ever I could say I heard the Lord, a scripture spoken personally to my heart, it was spoken to my heart that day. And I remember just looking up to the Lord, sitting in my backyard, and the tears started to flow. And I made a commitment to the Lord that I would never allow another day to go by the rest of my life if He'd give me strength. Never allow a day to go by that would be absent of spiritual yada. That no matter what, no matter what was required for me getting alone with you, Lord, I am going to make an appointment with you every day. The most important appointment I'll make. In fact, for the first three or four months of that, I'd get up in the morning and say out loud, the most important appointment I have today is with the Lord. I won't let anything get in the way of that appointment. And boy, there were some struggles in that. But that day, that afternoon, as I looked up to the Lord and I just expressed to the Lord a hunger in my heart to want to know Him more, I just said, Lord, I don't know if I even have the strength to say this, but I know I've got to say it that I will not let a day go by without spiritual yada. In that moment, I made a commitment that I would endeavor to see that that would be an hour every day. Because he said, could you not watch with me one hour? You had 24 hours a day. Could you set aside that one hour to be with me? Be in my word. Fellowship with me. Talk to me. Let me tell you how to pray, what to pray for. And something happened within me, because there was a great de degree of emotion that came, and a hunger for God. And all I can say is I crossed over a line. And the line was this, prayer never became, was never again to become an issue in any given day. And you have to be careful how you share that, because again, it can sound puffed up if you're not careful, and I don't mean it that way. I mean a commitment took place where I crossed over a line, and when I crossed over that line, I said, I'm not going to worry again. I'm not going to have to face this issue again. Well, do I have time for prayer? I'm not going to even have to ever again wonder if I, if I can find time for prayer, because I'm going to make time for prayer. Besides, if you try to find time for prayer, you'll wait a lifetime for prayer. You have to make time. And so I started every morning. And you know, it is amazing the way that the Lord would do things and open up pockets of time for prayer. I don't have the time to go in and tell you even specific illustrations where there was no hope for there to be prayer. And someone would come to me and say, look, we, we have to leave now. for We're going to be gone for maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half. I hope you don't mind just being here alone. But we, we have no choice. This call just came. You know, I mean, weird, weird things like that where you just know that the Lord was helping to ordain your time. There are many other occasions where I've had to say to people nicely, I just must be alone. But still, that time has continued on for these eight years. I can still remember twice, at least, no more than twice. Uh, but I still remember the first time most vividly of flying to Australia where we were gone at least 24 hours from the time we left the house, time we got on the airplane, the airplane alone was 19 hours. 
and where I had to take out my prayer map and prayer guides, and I was on that airplane and, and thought, well, I'm going to have my hour of prayer now. My wife's sitting right beside me. And how the Lord, I still remember that first flight, how the Lord stretched it into almost four hours, the most glorious time in prayer you could ever, ever describe. In fact, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I got to one point where I just had to sing to the Lord. I just had, see, I'm, I'm different in some ways. I make up my own songs. None of them will ever be a hit. But I sing scripture, I sing unto the Lord, and I've found, come to find out that I wasn't the only person that does this. In my book, The Hour That Changes the World, on singing in relationship to prayer, I talk about six biblical ways to actually sing to the Lord. It's unique to, to sing even with songs that the Lord gives you. And I got up on that big 747, I just said to my wife, honey, I, I've uh, got to go back to the bathroom. <laughs> and I went back in that bathroom, and I stood there because I didn't need to use the, the bathroom. I went back in that and I just stood there and said the tears just started to come. And I know this sounds very weird, perhaps, to some, but I just began to sing from my heart. And I said, Lord, you know, some people might think this is legalistic or you just got to do this, but I want to do this. I want to express to you in just this moment, I love you. And I sang it all. And I, I hope no one heard. <laughs> and afterwards, I can't believe I'm telling you this, but afterwards, you know, when I, I came out of there, I just, I had something that happened in my life and all that I look back to and remember, although as strange as that was, was that God allowed me to have a time of intimacy in a setting that normally wouldn't, you wouldn't have that kind of intimacy. He was saying to me, I can provide that time anytime. I can open the doors for you. Incidentally, some say, when you describe some of these things, and I think by the end of this day you'll understand that I'm very cautious not to make things sound legalistic. I still can't, I, I, I chuckle every time I think of my pastor when, and I attend quite large church of about oh, eight or 9,000 regular uh, attenders, and uh, my pastor's deeply committed to prayer, deeply so much so that he calls the Wednesday night Bible study, not Bible study, but a, a night of intercession, and it is Bible study always, but substantive intercession. Someone said to him when he was describing God's dealing with him in his, in his prayer life, his devotional life, they said, but pastor, that sounds legalistic to me. And he smiled and said, I love it, he said, you can call it legalism if you like. I prefer to call it disciplined liberty. Isn't that a great word for legalism? Disciplined liberty. Our cities have stop signs, stop and go lights. There's a disciplined liberty to keep people out of the hospital. To keep people from having the car smashed up and always in the repair shop. A disciplined liberty. Now, I want you to first stand with me because we have only about, the next session is very short and we're going to have prayer together, but let's stand.